0: Welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Dasigi. All right, today our guest is Ellie Pavlik, who is an assistant professor at Brown University and a research scientist at Google. Ellie, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: So we have these huge pre-trained language models these days um, that intuitively seem to capture some notion of like language, of English, or whatever language they're pre-trained on. But What a lot of people are thinking about these days is how do we actually know in some concrete quantitative sense, what these models know about language? And Ellie, you've done a lot of work in this direction. There are a few different ways to try to answer this question. Uh, Do you want to tell us about what some of those ways are?
1: Yeah, so I think kind of at a high level, it's a very exciting topic to me. And it's, it kind of represents somewhat of a pivot, I think, in NLP, right? Like, I remember, um, like, when I was in grad school, or uh quite recently like there was this uh very definite feeling of nlp as being like we are an engineering field so the question of like does the model know language was always very much in task specific way um so was like these kinds of debates about like what are the right parts of speech what should a representation of language have in terms of parts of speech or syntactic structure or like those kinds of discussions about language representation we could kind of punt on all of them right and just say like i don't care like i specifically remember hearing people saying things like the right representation is whatever representation allows me to do machine translation well or allows me to do summarization well or something like that and i think now that we've shifted towards these deep models and specifically trying to do these general purpose language representations it's like opened up this can of worms which is kind of a hot mess and i think that's what we'll hopefully talk about today in terms of like how we start to how we start to try to measure these things quantitatively. So that's not just like philosophical debates about what language should look like, but yeah, we definitely can't just use this task specific way. And so the, the kinds of methods that, um, that people have started inventing, I think there, um, there's like a lot of room to kind of pick through these and think about like what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. What is it we're trying to do?
0: Yeah yeah so so I guess you mentioned there like for machine translation what representation should I use and previously people like people tried um syntax based machine translation different uh, and phrase based and token based like there was a progression of using different kinds of representations to do machine translation and now it's all end to end and I guess so you you brought up like what representation should I use well now it's that's not the question anymore, because it's like, we we don't really know what representation the model is choosing to use. And so instead of trying to answer the question of what what representation should I use, like what what representation works best, it's what representation did the machine figure out? And we're trying to like, understand what's going on here, right?
1: Right. I mean, it's definitely like, that's where a lot of I think the kind of specific methods that we're we'll probably talk about today are kind of when a model was trained to do a task, what representation did it end up choosing and what kind of fell out to some extent for free. Um, But I think then there's the larger question of is, is that the right representation or is that a representation that will allow it to do all of the tasks? Right. And so a model trained end to end to do sentiment analysis might not end up learning something about syntactic structure, deep syntactic structure, because it's just not that necessary for sentiment. Whereas other types of tasks, it might be quite different. And and there's some assumption, I think, with all of us, that there is some, the right representation of language that allows you to do all the tasks. And we're hoping we kind of get there. But in the meantime, we're saying, like, on each of these specific tasks, what is the thing that fell out of each of those?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. You, you can imagine I want to do some particular end task. And the recommendation today is to do huge language model pre training on billions of tokens of text, and then learn some representation of language from that and use it to fine tune a model on whatever task you care about. But there's there's the question of, does the language model pre-training give me the information that I need in order to do my end task?
1: I think we're seeing that empirically. So there's this kind of assumption that some representations are better, quote unquote, than others, like some representations of language are better once they get at more or the important aspects of things. And some N10 training on some tasks might lead to better representations than other ones, right? And we're seeing that that language modeling, N10 training on language modeling produces representations that then work on a lot more tasks, or work better on a lot more tasks than N10 training on something like sentiment, right? Um, Actually, when I was at this uh, Hopkins summer workshop two summers ago now with Sam Bowman, and we had a team looking at different pre training models. And it was a it was an exercise in negative results, right? Because we were like, surely there's some test that's better than language modeling. And we tried lots of different things and we couldn't get something that really worked better than language modeling. And I think that kind of speaks to this point that it's like end to end training. It's not like end to end training always results in the same application. It is test specific. And so then the question is, what is the right task that will lead to better representations? And in order to do that, we have to say what counts as a better representation or how do we know that a representation is good?
0: Right. Yes. Uh, And also, language modeling isn't going, or or at least currently doesn't, get us everything we might want for all possible end tasks. Absolutely, right. And so, again, we're back to this question of what was actually learned? How do I know what's in there? And how can I make informed decisions about what I should do if I want to maximize performance on my end task? So now we come to how to... If I want to answer that question, what are the main techniques that people use to try to answer it?
1: Well, there's two main categories that I've spent more time thinking about, like in kind of broad brush strokes, I would say I've been kind of thinking of them as, uh, quote, structural and behavioral types of experiments. So and that terminology is somewhat borrowed from like when people study human language processing or something like that, like there's different kinds of ways of saying is my current theory of how human language processing works supported by some kind of evidence and one way you can do it is like structural type analysis which is like put the person under an fMRI and see if there's some kind of localizable parts of the brain activity that seem to correspond to some structure so like you would see stuff like if I show people if I have people read sentences about events in active and passive voice do I see the same parts light up in response to something like agent or patient roles, um, independent of syntax, things like that. So you're like looking for some kind of structural information that suggests that this piece of kind of our high level model of language is being represented somewhere. And then the other one would be like behavioral studies, which is basically just like, does my model make predictions that are consistent with the predictions that humans would make about language? So something like acceptability judgments is really standard, like here's a sentence, yes or no, is this a good English sentence? People make judgments about that. And you say, does my model make judgments that are highly correlated with humans? I think this is what we think about more in NLP as just kind of accuracy metrics against a human gold standard. I I think that's less straightforward than we sometimes assume it is. But to a large extent, we're just saying, like, does it make the same predictions? And it's quite possible that you have two models that are using entirely different structures, but making the same predictions, right? Um, And so it's maybe a little more model agnostic. You're just saying, is it making predictions that are consistent with humans? And I think we've been seeing a good amount of work on both of those. I I mean, personally, I've been trying to use both methods. Um, I think you can't get away with just one or just the other, but I think we've been seeing a lot of work on in both sides.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason you can't get away from using just one, you can't get away with just using one or the other is because both of them have limitations and things that they're good at. And there's, there's a lot to talk about here, but maybe we should start with just one of them. So uh, the structural analysis, like, which I guess people these days mostly call probing, there there some other related kinds of work?
1: I mean, I, I think I would also throw in loosely things like visualizations and stuff like that in with structural analysis. But yeah, I think probing largely.
0: Yep. So here, the basic idea is I'm going to freeze the weights of my model and see what I can pull out of those weights somehow, right? Right. So do you have a high level summary of like what what you do with this? And like, what are its limitations? What's, what's it good at? What can I actually learn from these probes?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to say about the probing techniques and limitations. So I think the strength or the thing you can say is somewhere in this representation, there was sufficient information to make predictions about the structure. That is very vague. So like, let's use it. So like looking at something like part of speech, you run some probing classifier and say, does this model know something about part of speech? So you say, let's look at the hidden representations, let's train a classifier on the frozen representations and say, does it know if this word was a noun or not? And so however accurate that classifier is, you can say there was enough information in this representation to know whether it was a noun with this percent accuracy, right? That's all you can really, really say. But that's not nothing, right? Because it says that there's some information that is indicative of that property of the language. Um, and when we look at different baselines, I think there's, like you can say, it's doing better than what it would have done from just lexical identity, for example, which tends to be a pretty strong baseline, or it's doing better than what it could have done from uh, from random guessing, those kinds of things, or guessing most frequent part of speech. That's definitely something, and it's exciting. I guess this this just started being used like a year or two years ago,
0: right? It's fairly new. Yeah, I, I think the original Elmo paper had a tiny bit of this. Right. Like this. This. This was my contribution to the Elmo paper. Was running some essentially some probing experiments on Elmo.
1: And that was like two years ago, right? Things uh, happen right, so fast. Uh, late
0: 20, Late 2017. So two and a half.
1: Two and a half yeah. years. Okay, so yeah, when this when people first start doing this, and I think also the what can you cram into a vector paper was one of those like early ones doing this. And this is, um, and it was like a really exciting idea. It was like, oh, what a cool way of of analyzing these things in terms of something other than prediction accuracy on a task. But then I think recently people have gotten pretty. Critic, not critical, but like disillusioned with it, because it's kind of seemed really promising. And then there's a lot of issues that come into play. So I think one of them is just how strong the probing classifiers are and how powerful these models, like they can get quite good accuracy on randomly initialized models and things like that. The, there's like weird heuristics that have gotten used in the probing classifier where it's like, oh, the, the probing classifier should be linear, which is quite an arbitrary constraint to place on it just for some we're like it should be linear it should be a small model um but that seems quite arbitrary and so it's hard to say why having part of speech be linearly extractable from the embeddings is better than having it be extractable with a small nonlinear network or something else and then i think also that notion so there's that recent um paper uh the control probes
0: yeah john hewitt at emnlp last year yep
1: so I think that kind of gets at what a lot of people have been worried about is just like, could these classifiers be doing a pretty good job, even with pretty crappy representations? And I think the answer is often, yeah, as we often see with neural nets, right, they're able to learn a lot from pretty bad inputs. So that's one thing is just kind of saying how much do i read into strong accuracy on the models the other issue i think which i've been more interested in is like the causality aspect of it so the fact that the representation uh does contain some information about this isn't nothing but it it says very little about whether the model's using it or using it in the right way and how important it is in the representation so like You could kind of incidentally have coded a lot about part of speech, and that doesn't mean you're actually sensitive to it in the ways you should be sensitive to it in any kind of downstream task.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you could summarize almost everything you said in just the simple... You have to take the absolute probing numbers that you get with a major, major grain of salt, because you really can't conclude hardly anything at all from the absolute numbers that you get out of a probing classifier. Like if I get 97% part of speech tagging accuracy or constituency label um like the the let me back up for the listeners one one probing task that you might do is take a word in a sentence and predict for just given the representation of that word in a contextualized embedding predict its path uh, in a constituency tree from the root to the leaf that is that word so like sentence verb phrase noun phrase determiner something like that so if i get really high accuracy on that say i get like 95% accuracy i i actually can't conclude very much just from that absolute number I do think the probes, though, are really good at giving, me, giving us relative information, like um, looking at different layers in a model and trying to understand where things are, or um, taking two different representations and comparing them. So we can get good relative information, just not good absolute information. The absolute information is kind of meaningless.
1: Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that, although I also think that's not unique to probes. Like One thing I've liked about this line of work in general is it's an excuse for us in NLP to take a step back and think about scientific methods and things like that. And I think it's always been the case that we shouldn't have been reading too much into absolute numbers. um, And we shouldn't be taking any one evaluation as an authority. I don't think it's quite, I don't think it's possible to have an evaluation that's the evaluation and that's all we ever have to worry about. Right. So to the extent that all of these methods are suspect, I think that's a really nice thing Um, (laughs) kind of forces us to take these things more, but yes, I think that's definitely true in, in, probing accuracy, something like that, especially because these baselines for a lot of language stuff are extremely high, right? Because we're dealing with very Zipian distributions of things and like you can, a dumb model can easily get 95% accuracy as we've known for a long time.
0: Yeah, I've been been trying to think of, I've talked with a few people about this, um, trying to figure out, can we actually get a probe that will give us numbers that we can trust? And it's hard to think about how to do that.
1: What do you mean by trust? I, I mean, I don't not trust the numbers. It's the interpretation oh, of the numbers. Like abs-
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Get absolute numbers. That if if I get very high absolute numbers, I, I can actually claim that the model has something about that linguistic phenomenon. To be to like, we can actually pose this question precisely, which is. Let's say I, I uh, this this comes from discussions I had on Twitter with Emily Bender about can you learn meaning from form. P, p, so, so Jacob Andreas in that discussion said, if there is something in my representation that is isomorphic to some linguistic phenomenon, then you can, if like across the board, there's this isomorphism between the language models representations and the... The meaning, whatever it is that you want to, that you that you want to extract, then you can say, okay, the language model has learned something interesting here. Anyway, I don't want to put words in Jacob Andreas's mouth, and that this isn't entirely the point. But that we can precisely characterize this problem as: is there an isomorphism from my language model representations to part of speech categories, and can I find that isomorphism using only a part of this of of, of the input space? And if I can find it using just part of the input space, and it generalizes to the rest then I can claim that there is something in that representation that knows about part of speech as we define it. Does this, this, do you buy this? I think,
1: yes. Um, And I think this is where I get into the, why we need the behavioral side too, or why I think that this area is quite a bit more complex than we often think of it. And um, And so one of these notions, I spend a lot of time talking to like linguists and psychologists too. And I think these notions of, there being a set of part of speech categories that this is the set and they should be represented. The the idea that we know what the model is that the neural net should be learning and we're trying to map it onto that. I don't know that we can take that for granted. And so like to the extent that you say like, yes, if there was, if there was some fixed set, if there was a meaning representation that I knew existed and I can learn some model, um, like if you can take as given the fact that there is some target representation, you're trying to say, did my neural net learn that? Then Yes. I don't actually know that I believe that that exists. Um, and so maybe that makes that a more a moot point. Or it seems like we, we would want something that would... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like for me, I often like to use the structural things as like, is there something that is highly uh, indicative of having captured this phenomenon? But I don't know that I want a, a hard, yes, it has it, because I think that line of saying it has to have this exact thing. If we actually knew that or if that was possible, then we wouldn't really need the big squishy neural net to do it. We could have written it down in some much more exact, nicer formula. And I don't think we have that for a lot of language phenomenon. Like we have close to it, but not the full thing. And part of what's really interesting and kind of exciting is the fact that these neural nets that don't have that thing are performing so well. And we're trying to figure out what part of that thing do they agree on? Do these competing models like much more structured symbolic models and softer models what parts do they agree on? Like, is there a notion of part of speech? And that we're seeing, yes. So I've seen like a lot of these probing classifier results as quite encouraging, kind of a win for a lot of linguistic theories that are like, if you want to model language, you're going to need some kind of notion of these types of things. And we're seeing that, yes, it's true that models that do this well, had to kind of, these notions had to emerge. But I don't know That once we have to get on an exact set, like we have to specifically say this is the actual part of sequence for all of these, and it exactly maps onto it. I don't know that we can do that. So I think I would be hesitant to pursue some line of work that assumed that.
0: Right, right. Yeah, this is really interesting. You highlighted to me like how many different questions there are that we could be asking with all of this stuff. There there are questions about language, like what are the part of speech categories? And is there a computational way that with these language models we can try to answer some of these questions? Like I'm not a linguist, but like there there's at least a little bit of potential here to try to answer that kind of question. There are also like learnability questions, like what falls out from a like an more an NLP kind of perspective? Like Given that I trained this model on language, what falls out? And is it is it at least close to stuff that linguists know about, even if the things that we've defined in linguistics aren't aren't perfect? Like what's 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 there?
1: Right. I think that yeah, I think it's actually really or maybe I'm just biased by what I've been thinking about recently, but you can definitely flip it on its head and try to use it the other way around. And so like you think about kind of when we back in like 80s and 90s in NLP incorporating or kind of the work on computational linguistics and bringing ideas from linguistics into NLP. It was like, linguists have these models. Can we use them to help improve uh, computational models? But now we're seeing these other things where it's like, oh, these models have empirical success. Can that help us inform the models of like, yeah, what categories are there or what structures are there? And I think that seeing what kind of falls out is a really promising or at least very interesting direction. Um, that said, I, I think what you were describing about trying to say, is there like a perfect mapping between these two spaces is a relevant piece for that, right? You would be saying like, what is the symbolic model that most closely describes what the neural net is doing, but I don't know if they'll ever be the same model.
0: I, I, I definitely agree <laughs> with that. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. This has been a really interesting discussion about probes. Um, you, you have what I think is one of the best works on um these kinds of probing models. And I wondered if you could tell us about some of the details of this. This is a paper that you published called uh, BERT rediscovers the classical NLP pipeline. Do you want to tell us what what's going on in this paper?
1: Yeah, so I think this actually, I mean, it segues nicely out of the what we're just talking about, where we want to say like these models are, maybe it's almost a a negative. So it's like, so these models have good empirical success. And we're trying to say, does this tell us something about what representations of language lead to this kind of empirical success? And so what we were doing in that paper was we're saying we know a lot about the kind of traditional pipeline that we've spent a lot of time building that was highly informed by linguistic theories about we have parts of speech and then parts of speech should inform, for example, parsing, and then parsing should inform, for example, co-reference resolution. Um, And if you were to Build or like you dan- download the Spacey or Stanford NLP pipeline, you'll like explicitly see these kinds of steps. And if you want to do something like constituency parsing, it will have to run a part of Speech Tiger first. And so we were saying, well, we've been using these proven classifiers to look at these different specific tasks like part of speech and constituency parsing. And so then the question is, um, within these neural networks, is it using them in the way that we'd kind of expect to get in the pipeline? Is this information being encoded in a way that's suggesting that that's consistent with this pipeline? Um, I should also just give a shout out to Ian Tenney, who's the first author on this paper, um, and a lot of great work and a lot of great ideas in here. for his. So what we wanted to do here was say, let's let's train these kind of proven classifiers for a lot of different tasks that exist in the pipeline, and let's train them at every level of these very, very deep networks. And what we ended up seeing was that the stuff that happens earlier in the pipeline, so things like part of speech tagging, would be encoded in earlier layers of the network, and then stuff that happened much later in the pipeline, so things like co-reference resolution, which depend on part of speech and parsing. We we assume to be good at co-reference resolution, you need some notion of uh, parse structure, for example, so that would happen much later. So that was just really, uh, I think, maybe validating to see from the perspective of these traditional pipelines is like yes in order for models to start doing really well they ended up kind of reinventing the wheel so, so when we say like can we look at the empirical success of these models and use it to learn something about how language might work in general this was almost like a validation that we're not seeing anything really fundamentally new here um, in terms of theories of how language is represented but it's quite exciting to see that this kind of emerged uh, naturally right so we didn't tell it you should encode part of speech first and then you should encode um, parse structure. But you see these kind of increasingly complex abstractions getting encoded one after the other. But the kind of nice thing you see that you don't see with traditional discrete pipelines is that over the course of the network, you can see <clears throat> that information will kind of move around and get and get influenced based on kind of high level information. So we saw these examples where you would have like a word that has an ambiguous part of speech, and it would in the lower levels be being tagged as like a noun, And then after the parse structure had been developed, it would get changed to being tagged as a verb or something that would depend on the parse structure in these quite elegant ways that, um, again, I think we used to work on explicitly by doing some kind of joint modeling and things that were like in pre-neural days. You would still try to appreciate the fact that sometimes the higher levels of the pipeline need to inform the lower levels and we'd have to kind of explicitly build these complicated joint models. And now that happens somewhat naturally in these end-to-end systems. So, So I think that was pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, we, we were talking about absolute numbers versus relative numbers. One reason this paper is informative and like really useful is that it really is only looking at relative performance. And you can say, like, get, like I, I probe each layer in some way uh, of BERT. And then because I, I, I'm i actually looking at this, that, oh, you do have some columns in your paper that, that say absolute numbers, but they're really not highlighted at all. And almost the entire paper is just focusing on relative judgments. Because mm-hmm. really, that's what we can learn from these probes. And you do a, a very convincing job of showing the points that you made. I think it's it's really nice. I, I do think it's worth highlighting, highlighting very briefly the way that you decided this. That you called it like an expected layer. Uh, do you remember how this is done? Do you want to describe what you're doing here?
1: Yeah. So and this is basically just saying at what layer do we... Like It's kind of what's the... Um, the center of mass for this distribution over all of the weights and layers. So at what layer are we roughly saying this is where we expect this information to have been encoded? Of course, there's, there's no tight regularization on these they were just regression weights like scalar mixing weights over all the layers invert so there's not like a single layer where it says this is where the part of speech is encoded right there's uh it can be kind of smeared over several layers so that was our way of kind of getting a, a single summary statistic of at what layer does this information roughly correspond to and that gives us a much clearer sense of the ordering of them we also you you can see and this is where you talk about the absolute numbers we have a lot of metrics. We got very metric happy because of the issues that you were talking about, right? Like no one metric will really tell the whole story. And so we wanted to be very honest with what's going on. So like we also have this notion of kind of how many new examples are you getting correct at each layer. And you'll see like a histogram in our massive plot in there. And you can see this issue with the relativeness, like at that first layer, you're in most, on most tasks, you're at like 90% accuracy. And so it really is about getting those long tail examples, right? But I think in, in most of language, I won't talk about like learning syntactic structure and it's about getting the tail right. And specifically when you talk about like linguistics and like real models of language, it's about not just getting the tail, it's getting all possible infant, like the full competence of the language, right? So yeah. it's, um, so 95% accuracy does not count is not even interesting, right? It's the other 5% that is what's important. And the fact that we can't understand these long ones so that you can see that quite clearly here in those figures because you see that at those first layers it's almost perfect accuracy on most things, but then it's how how far do you have to get in the network before you can start getting these long tail examples. Um, and sometimes that takes quite a while.
0: Yeah, great. Really nice paper.
2: I have a clarification. Uh, how important it is here for, uh, for the weights of the BERT model or the pre-trained model to be fixed as opposed to fine-tuned while doing the probing?
1: That's a great question. So we we've started looking at the fine-tuned models um we just did the the pre-trained models at the beginning just because it gave us a starting place um and it was like directly what do you get as a result of uh pre-training um the language modeling part but once you fine-tune models then things start changing quite a bit um we have some kind of work in progress we've been looking at uh, uh, also with ian um who was on that paper Um, we've been looking at some fine-tuned models it's largely quite similar and most of the fine-tuning seems to affect the higher layers which i think is consistent with stuff that's been shown in other work but it's still just like then you open up this again another can of worms right which is like what task are you fine-tuning on what is the domain of the data you're fine-tuning on what kinds of phenomena are being captured there and so the reason we start with the pre-trained model was just it was like the most vanilla setting and there's nothing that actually guarantees that it's going to be the same or different after fine-tuning and then once you're doing fine-tuning you have to make decisions about what task and all that kind of stuff so we started playing with that and i'm really interested in what's happening during fine-tuning my instinct right now is a lot less than than we think right like so not actually that much exciting stuff seems to be happening during fine-tuning it seems to be quite shallow updates to what's going on right so it's just kind of top layer it's not really doing big rewrites of what is syntax and things like that yeah but i think that that's a whole separate set of experiments we need to run to really know what's the difference between the pre-trained and fine-tuned models.
2: As we were talking earlier, like really probing helps when you look at relative numbers. Would the comparison between the fine-tuned measurements uh, for probing tasks and the pre-trained fixed weights, would it indicate anything for you if you look at them?
1: The difference between the pre-trained and the fine-tuned, I think if there were a big difference, relative difference, yes, I think that or like Relative to pre trained, fine tune showed a big difference. That'd be very interesting. One of the first things we did, so I, I made this point, so this is kind of ongoing work. We don't have anything to point to, which is kind just means I'm just going to spout vague stuff and no can back check me on it. Um, but we'll, we'll have stuff out soon. But we've been looking at, um, so yeah, this kind of question of the model is representing these features, but it's clearly not using it. Uh, so there was some work I did with Tal Linsen, um and Tom McCoy, his student, where we showed that, like, if you If you have these kind of template um, examples where you make little syntactic manipulations, it confuses these models, these fine-tuned models. So it's like they're not exploiting the fact that they have syntactic information, even though our probing studies suggest they do have syntactic information, right? So the first question is like, well, maybe during fine-tuning, it just zaps all the syntactic information. So maybe if we reran all these probing classifiers on the fine-tuned model, they'd be at very bad accuracy but that's not the case, right? Um, And I think I would have been quite surprised if that was the case. And so that's your question. is like, would the fine tuning just eliminate all of this rich syntactic structure that was learned during pre-training? But we don't see, it does not seem that that's the case. So there's something else going on. That's the model has these features, but it doesn't necessarily use them.
2: Got it. Thank you. Maybe
0: one way to describe that is that the fine tuned model learned some way of performing its end task without really needing all of the, the stuff that it learned from the language model pre training.
1: Right, right, right. Which is I think is quite unsurprising. It's like disappointing but unsurprising, right? <laughs> it's like like I see what you did there and I'm just, I just have to say I'm disappointed <laughs> language model. But like the uh because it's like whenever we train these these discriminative tasks, there's just a lot of easy, cheap tricks that they can exploit and the model has no incentive to prefer to learn to use subject object relations when it can just memorize lists of words Uh, other discussions and i've talked to people in computer vision i think the another assumption is that the generative nature of pre-training just incentivizes much much better models and richer structure and then we fine-tune on these discriminative tasks that just don't need that it's like easy to come up with kind of cheap tricks to learn discriminative tasks that you can't get away with if you're actually trying to model the full distribution of all the observed data so so that disconnect might might explain some something.
0: Yeah, I think one of the challenging things that we as a field will have to figure out is given these models that clearly do have some pretty I, I wanted to say deep, but I don't know that's quite the right <laughs> word, but, but how, do have non-trivial understanding of language phenomena from their pre-training, how do we get them to actually do something with it in a in a way that, that's like meaningful? And it 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 sure seems like they aren't. Even even though they have the like some they, they know something about language but it's just a bunch of cheap tricks in, in the models that we actually use
2: right 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 uh, i'm wondering if it makes sense to uh, to have some guidelines for like how to prepare a data set when you're doing the probing to avoid some of these cheap tricks you know the model could leverage like ideally you would like maybe all the words in the test set to be unseen in training That's probably not easy, you know, to find sentences with no overlap. But I imagine, like, we can have, like, a softer constraint uh, while constructing the data set.
1: You mean in the training and testing of the probing classifier?
2: Right. Yeah,
1: I think, like, the more held out, the better, definitely. But I think, to me, if this feels like baselines is your best bet right, is trying to make sure you're really clear and then, and then focusing on relative performances um, because I, I've just not yet seen a successful attempt to build a data set with no artifacts. So there's always some kind of artifacts, right? Um, and and especially the smarter these models are, then the more uh, buried the artifacts that they're exploiting become. And for things like syntactic structure, it can be really hard to say that like this is actually structure versus just a really deep correlation of groups of words, like it, it gets quite hard to really remove all of the things it might be exploiting. Yeah. So I think that in my opinion, the best practice is reporting lots of baseline numbers and at a minimum doing the kind of control probe type stuff of saying like, what if you randomly initialized and things like that, but then maybe even reporting for several different probing classifiers on maybe some different initializations and splits and giving it intervals and those kinds of things that just make it clear how interesting is the relative performance gain maybe
2: right and the baselines are always like one of the layers in the network or are there like other baselines that you're proposing or that they're thinking people should typically use when they're doing probing
1: um yes let me think so we're talking about let's say something like the part of speech one the baseline we've been using most that i quite like is just the the first layer of the network right um so like that basically tells us like what if you just knew about this word like you just knew the identity of the word but then we've also like so in the precursor to the rediscovers the pipeline paper was our eye clear paper where we were doing this probing there there we also did like increasingly large window size on each side so you're saying like what if you didn't just memorize the word but you basically memorized this five word window what if you looked at the whole sentence so we did a lot of things that were like what kinds of things might you be exploiting other than actually what's encoded about this word at this location in the sentence? And none of them are perfect, but you do see that they do start to close the gap. And so you like maybe you could explain the same relative improvement as instead of the model having encoded something about par speech, it's just packed into the representation of this word, a representation of its neighbor words as well, um, and maybe that would be enough. And it, this is like the fancy 2020 version of we built a trigram model instead of a unigram model or something and that's kind of what could be happening and so i think having those kinds of baselines help quite a bit but then other things you can do with data sets like making trying to remove heuristics to the extent possible having the data sets be more held out or even pathological um, and this maybe gets into the behavioral type studies like if you say like the heuristics you could have used at uh, train time will give you 0% at test time, right? Like by inverting all of your compositions or something like that. Like every word that appeared as a contradiction in the training set is now an entailment in the testing set, something like that.
0: Yeah, so going back to the isomorphism stuff that I mentioned earlier, I I, I think the way to solve Walid's problem, um, like to build a data set in a, at least it's easy to think about this in a toy two-dimensional space. Like I take say the upper left quadrant and I use that, that input space only to learn an isomorphism, like to essentially to learn a classifier to what my output space should be. And then if it generalizes to the other three quadrants, then I can make strong claims about the underlying representation. And so if you can actually partition your space this way, this is essentially between train and test of the the probing classifier. If you can actually partition the space, then you can make strong claims. The trouble is, it's not really clear at all how to do that with language. Right, right, right. And Nelson Liu, uh, I get, Nelson tried to do this, because uh, I was like, hey, we should do this, because this, this seems like the right way to do it. He spent some time trying to figure out how to do it, couldn't really figure out a good way to actually split the data.
1: What did he so. try? Because I, I can't picture how I would do this with language, because it's so structured. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's like you get closed class function words like the and uh, and like you, you would have to have it such that all of, the, all of the occurrences of the are in the train set and all of the occurrences of uh are in the test set or so, something like this. But then you also, as you said, have to think about determiner noun combination, like what if it's just that structure and so you have to split across that. It's, so it, yeah, it gets really messy. It's easy to think about in a toy space, but like impossible for these super high dimensional spaces like language.
1: Right. And, and I think actually, this gets to another question that's come increasingly kind of in this space, which is like, what is a fair generalization to make? I'm not sure that there is any model of human language that says you should know what a means having only ever heard what the means. Like there's, that's just not really a sensible thing. We would expect any model of language to be able to explain. That's not a generalization that kids can do.
0: So so that's not actually what we're saying with this. We're saying that in my representation learning, I got to see all occurrences of the and uh and whatever. It's just that when I tried to map that to some meaning representation, I only got to see the to learn the mapping. And then if that mapping translates and, and also works with uh, then I've learned something generalizable about those, those part of speech categories.
1: Right, right, right. And then this gets to what I was saying before, but as far as I know... There's not actually a meaning representation like a standard known meaning representation that can collapse words in these ways right So there is some distinction between the and the that we do need to maintain um, that you wouldn't actually want these to map onto the same part of your meaning representation because then you'll lose the distinction between the and the. And if your model's a good model, it knows the distinction between the and not the. so there's some okay. weirdness. All
0: well, right this is this is why the mapping um, like would pull out the part of speech. And so like, I, I can learn several different mappings to learn different things, like maybe definiteness or whatever. And so the mapping that is like, this is a determiner, that should generalize, hopefully. But your, your point earlier is it still stands that like, part of speech is fuzzy. When we get to boundary cases, it's not really clear what we should do. There, there, there are reasons why you shouldn't ever expect something perfect in this mapping. I think this is a, a great time to pivot to the behavioral testing that you were talking about. I guess we've already gone... <laughs> almost the length of a full episode just talking about the probes. But I uh, I think it would be nice to talk for at least a little bit about the behavioral testing. Uh, what is this and how does it work?
1: Yeah, so I guess the idea here would be let's not make any particular claims about what the underlying structure of what the model should have learned structurally. And instead, let's just say, what are the types of predictions it should be able to explain or produce or support? So you would say something like, well, maybe if a model knows something about subject object roles or subject object ordering, it should be able to distinguish between the sentences man bites dog and dog bites man, right? That's like the, one of the classic examples, or if it knows something about factive verbs, then it should know that it should know that the sentence, I know that factive verbs entail their compliments, mean that factive verbs entail their compliments. I should use a better example than that. Something like I know that Sally is from Chicago, entails Sally's from Chicago. So you could set up these kinds of entailment type tests or uh, paraphrase tests or acceptability tests that are supposed to that if a model has a good representation of some particular structure, some particular electrical knowledge, then it should make correct predictions on these inferences. And so then you can basically just train models on on these tests and then measure accuracy. And then you assume accuracy as a prop- proxy for having represented that structure, that feature, that aspect of language enough to make good predictions about it.
0: I guess the, the main challenge here of a behavioral test versus a probe is that the language model can't do the behavioral test without additional training, right? Its output space is it's typically a generative model, either over masked words in a sentence or next words um, or something like this. But the, the, the behavioral test that you want, the model isn't trained to, to do this. So how do I actually do a, a behavioral test on something that was trained in a gener- generative way?
1: I think that's often true in general, although that's not the distinction I would make between structural and behavioral types of things because like you could, um, so like the Tollens and joach Goldberg style subject for um, agreement tasks are directly an artifact of the pre-trained language model. You just say predict which word comes next, but that would still be somewhat of a behavioral task, right? I I would think um, because you're just, you're not saying Yeah. And and I think other ones that where people look at things like correlations with surprisal measures or something in humans, like you can imagine something like that. But more often than that, we design something like an entailment set. And a lot of the work that I've um, been involved in has been like entailment style sentence pairs. And then, yeah, we have to fine tune a BERT-based model um, to do this test specifically. And that introduces quite a lot of compounds um, because um, because then you have to train it on some tests and then i guess this gets at the issue with you have to train probing classifiers too but you have to figure out what kind of splits there are what kind of artifacts are being introduced in the training set um you have to make assumptions about the form of the the fine-tuned classifier and model and now you've introduced a lot of stuff beyond what was directly an artifact of the pre-trained model right
0: yeah yeah i mean that's a, that's a good characterization i guess if you want to do the non-fine-tuned behavioral test you have to figure out how to test the phenomena that you care about in a way that doesn't require fine tuning, which is challenging.
1: Yeah. I think this is Adam Poliak's paper and Ben Vandermeer in the that lab has used the phrase recasting quite a bit in this way. And I think when people talk, and I think there has been other work where it's like turn everything into a language modeling task or turn everything into a QA task. And I think it's actually not. Uh, so that's basically let's redesign the task in such a way that, um, that it fits the form the model was explicitly trained to do, hopefully without then needing to do a ton of fine tuning. I think the, the work on like using language models for common sense reasoning and knowledge base completion and stuff would kind of fall into that. It's like, oh, instead of asking questions, let's just have it complete, fill in the blank and see how well it does.
0: I have mixed feelings about this. I, like at one level, the format in some sense probably doesn't matter. In most cases, like if you do it with a language model versus if you do it with a sentence pair classification like NLI or if you do it in like a question answering format, these are basically isomorphic to each other in most cases. And you can like the information content in all of your examples is basically the same. And so the reason you might want to do it is if I have a model that was trained in one way and I want to ask things about what it can do without introducing confounds then I might want to like recast things in order to probe that kind of model.
1: Right. With anything where you have to fine tune, I think this gets at the issue of what's a fair generalization task that we were just talking about. So like if I've trained a language model and now I'm trying to test an NLI, there's a bit of work that needs to be done to just train the model about like the shape of the NLI task. Like it just needs to know what are the inputs, what are the outputs, what do I care about here? And so that requires it to do a ton of additional training where it could learn all sorts of new things and people generally want to avoid that. Um, but then if you have a model that was trained on, even if you have a model that was trained and it kind of knows the quote shape of the task, you still end up with these issues where it's like, did it actually get exposed to enough data of this phenomena that we should have expected it to learn? it? And I think this is what's come up quite a bit with um, questions around kind of compositionality and syntactic structure and things like that, where it's like, is it fair to assume that the model could have learned this relationship between for example like uh this verb and particular constraints on its arguments or something like that um and you're like well if it's only seen any verbs of this type five times during training ten times a hundred times like what's enough times to now hold it responsible for having learned that and i think often we kind of throw up our hands and maybe that's fine and we say i don't know i'm just asking did it learn it not should it have learned it but then to the when we start doing the analysis, we often then have a little more evaluative aspect and we're kind of like disappointed that the model didn't learn it and we're not sure if it's an architecture issue or a data issue. And that kind of opens up that that whole avenue of investigation.
0: Right. I, I guess you you can't even go down that avenue of investigation until you're able to ask and answer the questions, right? So figuring out what the right way to ask it is then lets us ask further questions about if it if it doesn't know this, why not? Right. Right. So I think we're running a bit low on time. Do you have like a two minute version of what your favorite behavioral tasks are?
1: No, <laughs> because, so, and I will say why. Um, yes, yeah, so we didn't get to get into it. I think one of the, a separate bit of work that, um, or kind of parallel work to this has been figuring out what the human upper bound on these should be. And I think that that is actually incredibly hard. And, um, and so I kind of like to use the fact that we're doing all this probing work as an excuse to revisit what is it that we know about human language processing or how do we know that humans have these structures or have this behavior and we probably shouldn't be taking all of those things for granted. Like now is a good time to revisit what are properties that language should have. Um, So I think I do actually have a favorite task, which is I still like the entailment NLI task. It's like entailment in quotes. It's not really linguistics entailment. It's like NLP entailment, but I like this kind of natural language inference task where it's like read some sentence Draw some conclusions about the world. Now, now, uh, say yes or no to other sentences based on your current model of the world. Like that's kind of how I think of the task. I think it's pretty elegant, and most things could be mapped onto this format in a very natural way. That I don't think any of our current NLI datasets are really satisfying, but I think the task itself is quite nice. But that's one where I think that. It's actually, it, it sounds very simple and it is remarkably hard to get this task into a format that's um, where you can get high human agreement and that we really know what inferences they should make. And so I think that, that there's something much deeper going on there that um, rather than simplifying the task or switching to a different task where we have a sense that we have better human agreement, it's like a good excuse to, to kind of stay, take a step back and say, what is it we're actually asking models to do? Why is it that human, that it's so hard to get humans to do it with high accuracy or with high agreement? And yeah, and I think that's probably true of quite a large number of the behavioral tasks, that the human gold standard is actually not that clear cut.
0: Yeah, and you have a nice paper on this topic about disagreement in NLI and trying to better model the disagreement. Uh, You want to give listeners a pointer to the title of that paper if they want to look at it?
1: Yeah, I think it's called Inherent disagreements in human textual inferences it was at one point human judgments of entailment but i think i changed it to human textual inferences because entailment's a loaded word
0: great thanks this has been a really fun discussion um is there do you have any final thoughts or anything that you really wanted to cover that we didn't get to
1: i don't think so i think this is a huge topic i hope we uh we at least hit the the main points there's there's so much to talk about so yeah
0: yeah thanks this was this was really fun
1: cool thanks so much